0: I first learned about Dr. Margaret T. Burroughs a few several years ago actually when I was doing some research of my own and I was just genuinely curious. I'm like who are black women who have started arts institutions or cultural spaces here in Chicago? And so ultimately her name was the first name that popped up and it just opened up so much for me. I was like, oh my God, how is it that I don't know anything about this woman? Um, And I had heard a little bit about her from um, a news special that was done when she passed away. But other than that, I didn't really know a lot about her involvement with like founding like the Southside Community Arts Center or the other work that she did. And so it just opened a lot for me um, in terms of thinking about how she really, really carved a space for black women to continue to do the type of cultural work and art space work that I'm doing and that other black women are doing. And so in that way, I feel like I'm a part of her legacy, or at least continuing some part of her legacy.
1: From Post Loudness and 60 Inches from Center, this is South Side Stories, a podcast special exploring one of Chicago's most influential figures, Dr. Margaret T. Burroughs.
0: Hey y'all, I'm Zakia Najiba, a visual artist and
1: educator. And I'm Britt Julius, a writer and journalist with a deep love of the arts. Think of us as your guides through this woman's incredible life. We will be presenting this to you in two parts. In part one, we will introduce you to Dr. Burroughs and how she was able to build not one, but two art institutions on the south side of Chicago.
0: And in part two, you will come with us as we visit some of her work, her fellow artists in the black arts movement, and learn how it continues to influence Chicago today. So
1: stay with us. Zakiya, I have to ask, what is your legacy? I know, I know, that's a big question.
0: That is a big question. But before we answer that, one question needs to
1: be addressed. Who is Dr. Margaret T. Burrows? Or another question, how did she become so influential? Not only in Chicago, but beyond. What's her story? and why should folks know it? Okay, okay, maybe that's a lot of questions. (laughs) But let's start by saying this.
0: Dr. Burroughs did a lot. She's probably best remembered for founding the Ebony Museum of Chicago, now known as the DeSable Museum of African American History. But her list of achievements
1: reached far beyond the museum walls. That's right. Dr. Burroughs was an artist, a writer, a poet, an educator. She even wrote children's books children's books. Oh, yeah. To say she stayed booked and busy would be an understatement. But more than anything, Dr. Burroughs was a notably complex and strong-willed woman.
2: She didn't ask permission. She just, like, she was a woman, and she was a tiny woman, but she was like a mountain. Like, when she came in a room, like, presence was known, and she just started telling you what she was going to do and how you was going to do it, and, and you do it.
0: And that was Fahim Majid, an artist, curator, and educator. From 2005 into 2011, Fahim was actually the executive director and curator for the Southside Community Arts Center, for which Dr. Burroughs was a founding board member. Tempest Hazel, a writer, independent curator, and founder of 60 Inches from Center, said Dr. Burroughs was something of a radical for her time.
3: Like, I've heard, I've heard a, lot of, a lot of different uh, accounts of, of who who she was and people's experiences with her that have been, some have been a little testy. Some have been like, you know, like she's, she, you know, she's one that wouldn't mind speaking up and challenging and like saying what was on her mind. And that doesn't always rub people the right way. Uh, Especially coming from a woman, especially coming from a black woman, especially coming from someone who is completely, like we talk about the word unapologetic now, like she would have been wearing that (laughs) t-shirt back in the forties, fifties, sixties, you know? Um, she didn't, in order to do what she was able to do, you had to be a certain, you you just had to be a certain kind of person that didn't take, didn't take anyone's mess, you know?
1: I have to shout an absolute yes to any black woman that doesn't ask for permission, especially given the time period in which she was born. The early 1900s, to be exact, in St. Rose, Louisiana, though some sources still speculate about her actual birth year, an early sign of a legend in the making, if you ask me. But let's fast forward a bit. Dr. Burroughs arrived in Chicago at the age of five.
0: Not much is known about Dr. Burroughs' childhood here, but we do know years later in 1939 and on her solidified path to being a boss, (laughs) she received her teaching certificate from Chicago Normal College,
1: which is now Chicago State. Not only is she out here educating the people, shortly after she becomes a founding member of the Southside Community Arts Center in 1941, Dr. Burroughs was out here making moves major moves, but going back to educating the
0: people, service work and accessible models of education were so essential to who she was. Through this work, Dr. Burroughs encouraged black folks to know their culture and their history. Institution building played a major factor in the amazing journey she led, which later influenced and educated many of the cultural contributions of black
1: folks here in Chicago and beyond. Definitely. Amidst the political and racial landscape at the time and now, it's really critical for folks to know that in Dr. Burroughs' recognition of injustice, she devoted her life to rectifying injustice through institution building and educational work. Dr. Burroughs actually taught at Statesville Prison for 35 years.
0: Teaching was so critical to who she was. Why was that? Because she was very much an advocate for working within and for her community. Yeah, she gained something of an elite education at the School of the Art Institute here in Chicago and traveled across the globe. But Dr. Burrows knew the real work can and should be done on the ground floor, working with the people. No one person or mind was better than the next. If we want to rise, we must all rise. Exactly. To think about this woman who utilized the resources that were already available to her without any apologies, without any fear, is just really inspiring.
1: It shows a really strong sense of determination. And that's truly who Dr. Burroughs was to the people around her. There was a magnitude to her presence, right? She would come into a room, be a mountain, and stand proud. Here's what Skylar Hearn, lead archival specialist at the DuSable Museum, had to say about her.
4: I think that, and you know, some people, you know, you may disagree, you may laugh, but uh, there's a particular force that black women come with, and you know, whether we're set out or, or, or whether whether we are intending to be or not, you know, there's a level of intimidation, but there's also a level of love and care.
0: And that mindset, which ran through the course of her life, began at a really early age. When Dr. Burroughs did talk about her childhood, she discussed how that sense of self-determination, that will to always
1: find a way, was ingrained in her from an early age. Absolutely. I think the way you grow up, you know, what you see in your space or in your community or in your environment influences, most of the time at least, how you view the world and how you want to navigate the world.
4: So, Dr. Burroughs at a very young age, um, I think, identified with the fact that there were a lot of injustices, you know, they were taking place like right um, in her uh, home soil, so to speak, like right in her neighborhood, right in her backyard.
0: One of the reasons why she was so excited about coming to Chicago is that she never saw a lynching in Chicago. She was very aware racism operated differently in the South. And even as a young child,
1: she saw she could have more agency up north than down south. Now, I'm a black woman and a born and bred Chicagoan, so I know racism exists everywhere. Oh, of course. And I think Dr. Burroughs knew that, too. But she
0: also knew that she could do things in Chicago that may not have been possible if she was in the South.
1: It's kind of wild to think that these early moments, regardless of how major or tragic they were, had such an influence on one woman's life. Well, I think that's what
0: separates Dr. Burroughs from everyone else, right? Those early moments didn't just or only instill fear or sadness. They also solidified the sort of self-determination and will that would weave its way again and again throughout her work. It helped her become a resource for her community and the progression of Black people in America as a
1: whole. But it wasn't just about the move from the South to the North that influenced her, right? Yeah, I mean, what her family did after the
0: move was just as important to the image we still hold of Dr. Burroughs today. There was
4: something um, that has, there's something that stayed with me over the years, which was she talked about when her family moved here from St. Rose Parish, Louisiana. You know, when they moved here, um, when she was a very little girl from St. Rose Parish, you know, um, she spoke very proudly about, you know, how her family would not go on welfare, how they would not get any assistance. They would not stand in line and get, you know, the freebies. I think that's what she called. (laughs) Don't quote me though. (laughs) Um, but you know how her family worked everybody worked hard they put their money together and they made sure that they got the things that they needed and you know I think that she took that ideology with her throughout her life because you know she like a lot of us was able to recognize this void but you know she was so solution oriented to the point where not only did she recognize the void but you know she decided to figure out some ways to address that void and then to you know
1: benefit other folks who are in the community be with her. Solution oriented. I like that phrase. You know, I think it really speaks to the root of how she was able to get things done, right? She knew what she wanted. She had a strong vision and she definitely wasn't afraid to tell people what to do and how to do it. To do work like that, to be an educator and build institutions and
0: write books, I do feel like you need to have a very strong definition of who you are. At that time, it was expected for women to be complacent or content, especially black women. And for her to take this initiative and everything she accomplished showed she
1: really and truly believed in what she was doing. It's sort of like, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do, and if you're on board, that's great. And if you're not, get out the way. (laughs) Yes, get (laughs) all the way out the way. Yes. (laughs) So maybe that's her legacy. Not just the actual, physical, tangible things she created, you know, the books and the museums and the artwork, but this model of doing things for her people, by her people, with her people. It takes a lot of self-will to make those things happen.
0: And self-will is definitely what Dr. Burroughs possessed.
1: So some parts of Dr. Burroughs' life feel out of order. What do you mean by that? Well, okay, she attended Chicago Normal College and received her teaching certificate in 1939. And then two years later, she helped found the Southside Community Arts Center. Right. But then five years after that, in 1946, she began teaching at DeSable High School, And she would go on to continue teaching there for another 27 years. And during those 27 years, she would receive her Bachelor of Fine Arts and Master of Fine Arts degrees, found the Ebony Museum of Negro History, even traveled to Africa. Her ability to accomplish all of this while still teaching, that's pretty spectacular.
0: Well, that just goes back to Dr. Burroughs' legacy, right? If there's a will, there's a way. And oftentimes that will mean doing what you can, when you can, however you
5: can.
1: Right. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of her adulthood and talk about the Southside Community Arts Center.
5: The Southside Community Arts Center was founded in 1940 by a group of independent African-American artists with the help of community and friends. And it was born a of necessity of having a gallery that would hang African American fine art. Racism denied the participation of being in what is called a legitimate gallery because of the color of African American skin.
1: That's Masequa Myers, the current executive director of the Southside Community Arts Center.
5: The mission is to preserve and conserve and promote the legacy and the future of african-american art and artists while we educate the community in the value and importance of art and culture that's who we are and so the job then becomes how do we accomplish and, and execute that mission so what we're saying is we want to make sure that African-American art is seen, identified, seen, and uh, restored, or uh, kept in its proper condition. And the Southside Community Art Center becomes a place where artists can uh, display, can develop their craft, and also a place where the art can be taught. And so that is what the job of the executive directors to make sure those things happen.
0: The Southside Community Arts Center was not just monumental for Black folks on the Southside. Its impact reached far beyond the invisible borders that often define Chicago. How so? Well, consider this. The center was one of the 100 community art centers created through the Federal Art Project, a New Deal program created to help support the visual arts. Its establishment was actually funded by the Works Progress Administration, or known as the WPA. So the center received national government support. Yes. Masequa Meyer said the Southside Community Arts Center's mission resonated with many people, and not just the black artists who founded it.
6: Going
5: back to the dedication, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt gave a dedication speech right here in our, what is now called, The Burroughs Gallery. So that was indeed two historical moments in time simultaneously happening. The opening of the Southside Community Arts Center and the presence of Eleanor Roosevelt. I would like to say that if it wasn't for the affinity for the arts that First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt had at the time then there might not have been a Southside Community Arts Center. There might not have been these hundred-plus Art centers that were opened all around the country at that time. And so when the president, Roosevelt, was putting America back to work, like the uh, roads being built and the buildings being built, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt said, well, let's put our artists to work.
1: Why would the first lady of the United States travel all the way to Chicago for the opening of a small community art center? and one focused on the primarily black south side of Chicago at that. Well, maybe people don't know this, but Eleanor Roosevelt was actually
0: really involved in the viewing process of folks applying for the WPA program. She really believed in this process and the proposal, and she really wanted to be there for the opening of it,
1: so she showed up. That kind of reminds me of Dr. Burroughs in a way. What do you mean? Well, I think they both had a similar way of looking at life. If you wanted something to be done, you did it. And if you wanted to see something happen, you made it happen. Nothing could really get in their way. Not even age. Dr.
0: Burroughs was only 23 when she became a founding board member of the center. You know, I
1: think when you think of serving on a board or being a board member, you think of older folks, not some recent graduate just embarking on her first adventures in life. So it seems like a Big deal for Dr. Burroughs to have that kind of position at such a young age. Oh, of course. And I think it speaks again to how she navigated the world.
0: Dr. Burroughs moved with a sense of determination to right the injustices that existed at that time. And to take an active role in a new community institution created to address the rampant discrimination towards Black artists shows that she was definitely about that life, always and from the jump. She saw the injustices, and it was her self-appointed duty to rectify and eliminate them.
3: She had, like, energy. So I think at the end, you know, at the very base level of it, it's like she was able to do everything that she did because she had so much energy for the ideas that she had. Um, So that's kind of, like, the individual piece of it. That was
1: Tempest Hazel again.
3: She also was a person within a community of artists that were just as... You know as hungry for building the kind of um, the kind of environment or like cultural landscape that they wanted and that they felt would support their work and I mean that that's huge she didn't do I don't I, don't, I wanted to make sure like there's a there's a, a way in which I wanted to honor her legacy but also recognize the fact that it's not like she did it alone
1: other founding members of the Southside Community Arts Center include Eldir Cortor, another School of the Art Institute alum. Was SAIC really important? Well, actually, it was one, if not
0: the only, art institutions in the country at that time to even allow Black Americans to study. And so there was a significant number of Black artists in Chicago, and that really shaped not only where Black art was being made and supported, with the intention and the mission of the artists and curators operating within that world.
5: Let me say that those African-American artists that studied at the Art Institute of Chicago had and created, created and had a tradition. And that tradition was they would come back to the community and teach the community classes for free for those who could not attend or could not afford to attend the Art Institute of Chicago.
1: It wasn't like they went to this fancy art institution and decided, oh, we're going to go out into the world and make fine art and people are going to collect it. I mean, that was hard in general because they were black artists. But you know what they did think about? How about we teach what was taught to us at the
0: School of the Art Institute in the Southside Community Arts Center? It was this other way of making that technical knowledge from an arts institution more accessible to folks in the community
1: on the South Side, right in Bronzeville. So they had access to this institution, but what does this access mean if they're not sharing it with other people? It seems so simple now, but their work, her work,
0: was truly radical at that time. As Skyla Hearn points out, it wasn't just about having a place to show their art. It was about having a place to exist, create, and grow as artists.
4: Um, But what I can say that I am very well aware of is when she started to take action. Um, And this was, you know, in her early adulthood. And, you know, she took it to the streets, as I like to say, um, collecting money to support the establishment of the Southside community art center. Um, Because what she recognized was during this time as an art student herself, Was that there were not a lot of places where, you know, she and her peers um, could, you know, where they were able to convene um, for the sake of just, you know, being in conversation with each other about, you know, their different practices, you know, getting feedback um, and even just, you know,
1: places to practice um, to create their art. How could one be expected to expand creatively if they have no place to do it? And so they created the space, but they didn't just create it anywhere. Dr. Burroughs never left the South Side. Why do you think that's important?
0: I think it's important because it really speaks to her wanting to build relationships with people in the neighborhood you want to build in. It also shows that the things most important to you include having the support of that community first. That's how things become
1: sustainable and that's how you build relationships. She really rooted herself in her community. Board members typically come and go, but Was said that Dr. Burroughs stayed connected to the Southside Community Arts Center until she was 93.
5: Other artists either passed away, moved away to another state, to another country, but she was steadfast here.
0: You know what, I've seen this a lot actually. People will live in a completely different community than where they're advocating. But for Dr. Burrows, I think she was intentional that if you're gonna do the work in a place, you need to live in that place and make it home. She really set forth an example and she modeled that for other people.
5: But we also have the different distinction of other art centers because we pride ourselves in making sure that we remain a part of the social justice movement. And so you will often find the community meeting here to have uh, brainstorming sessions on issues that have occurred in the community. And you will often find art that is being created in our workshops and our classes based around themes and issues and current events uh, of the African-American community. And that I think will always be important and maybe is probably why we are still alive because each decade from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s and the 2010s is the fact that we are not closing or shutting, closing our mouths, or shutting our uh, eyes and being blind towards improving the quality of the life of the African-American.
1: The Southside Community Arts Center wasn't the only place Dr. Burroughs helped create. She's best known for founding the Ebony Museum of Negro History and Art, which actually later became known as the DuSable Museum of African-American History. The DuSable is the oldest institution of African-American history, period. Before the recent creation of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, the DuSable was the largest institution of its kind in the country. But it didn't just start off as this beautiful, massive
0: museum space. It took a lot of work. And that word that keeps coming up again, self-determination, for Dr. Burroughs and the other founders to really get the museum off the ground.
1: And by self-determination, what exactly do
0: you mean? It takes a really humble person to say, I'm going to do this in a grassroots way. Um, For Dr. Burroughs, that meant using her social capital as a way to build her art center, you know, and by any means necessary. Here's Fahim Majid.
2: It wasn't an option. You didn't get to say no. That's not how she phrased her advocacy. She said, you're going to write a check or you're going to support in this way or I need you to do this thing and figure that out, you know, so and I would say probably some people didn't react so well to that, but the majority of people, you know, when you look at her record and everything that she's done, how are you going to argue? You know, you can't argue support. You can't, you can't have no excuses. You know, for all the things you talk about being you know, a black woman coming up in the '40s and the '50s and doing all this stuff, founding museum, you know, got, gal- gal- uh, you know, uh, pulling together communities to do all this stuff. I mean, ain't no excuses.
1: The art world can be really money driven. So if you are concerned about integrity or communities outside of yourself, you know, it makes it very hard to operate. But Dr. Burroughs, she had a sort of unapologetic energy, right? And she was very clear about what she was doing and why she was doing it. You know, I find that to be really powerful, especially with her as a woman and really carrying that sort of agency at the time and utilizing it. You know what? Me too. I think she inspires me because she makes me feel like I don't have to limit myself. As an artist, do you often feel like the art world can be limiting? It's not the art world that's limiting
0: but it's more so the mindsets that are ingrained in us that can be limiting. What do you mean? Well, with Dr. Burroughs, she really expanded the cultural definition of what it
1: meant to be Black on the South Side, and she normalized Blackness. You know, it probably helps seeing this modeled through her lens, a Black female lens.
0: Yeah, I mean, her point of view was very much part of a larger tradition of building on the South Side with Black artists at the time.
2: Here, artists were uh, saying in the late 60s and early 70s that art had a social component to it. And that it had an, it's going to have an effect on us. And it did. As I tell people, I entered the 1960s, 1960s as a Negro, and I came out in the 1960s as black.
0: That was Patrick McCoy, one of Chicago's most notable black art collectors and founders of Diaspora Rhythms, a collective of black art collector enthusiasts.
1: But Dr. Burroughs didn't just resign herself to the limitations of the time.
0: Yeah, it's like we black, we marginalized, but we should be doing this, meaning making art and celebrating our art anyway, because we're human and we need this to exist in the world.
1: So how did she turn her dream into a reality? Well, you know, Dr. Burroughs could have spent time working with the wealthiest folks she knew. And I'm sure she certainly did some of that.
0: But she also, and most importantly, stayed close to home to do the work. Close to home? Yeah, Skyla Hearn, currently the lead archival specialist at the DuSable Museum of African American History, said Dr. Burroughs found the methods to get what she wanted, whether it was for the Southside Community Arts Center or the DuSable Museum, by as much as possible, really just utilizing the resources that were already around her. Here's Skyla. You know, um, and so it was like this large scale networking
4: that took place. And, you know, Dr. Burroughs was the one who, you know, initiated all of this. And, you know, you have to think about what that means at that time because in a way I like to think that she was intellectually strong arming her way into these spaces you know um and saying you know hey look we're here um and you know these are our needs but you know it didn't seem to me that she was so much so about going to find you know, these resources outside as much as creating these resources from within and then sharing and you know strengthening the community in that
1: way. Dr. Burroughs was not afraid to do what needed to be done to get what she wanted. It's the sort of nerve and drive many of us claim to possess, but when push comes to shove, most of us don't want to do the real work, but not Dr. Burroughs. She had to be that way, though.
0: It's almost like she didn't have a choice. Dr. Burroughs likely thought, if I'm going to do this, I have to be aggressive. I have to be demanding. I can't let people talk to me any
1: kind of way or take advantage of me. You can't be a pushover when you need to push things through. And so, you know, no source of donation was too small or too insignificant to make her dream a reality. Dr. Burroughs knew everyone at the time, from the mayor and the aldermen of her neighborhood to people who own their own foundations, to domestic workers, to your average everyday person. So this included students, postmen, and folks who were even incarcerated. I'd like to think she treated people equally. And you know what? I'm
0: pretty sure she did. She may not have been rich, but socially she had a lot of status and a lot of capital she had a lot of power.
1: When people feel like they've, you know, reached a certain moment in their career, they often try to differentiate themselves from other people, right? Or navigate in certain social circles with people like them. But, you know, for her, it wasn't about exclusiveness. Exactly. And so Dr. Burrows would ask, what are your ideas? She
0: valued what you had to say, how you felt, and how you may have wanted to contribute to this larger cultural movement. And as she progressed in life, that was a major reason why she was able to get support, right? Dr. Burroughs asked herself, how can I utilize people I meet to further the cultural contributions
1: of black folks? And she utilized those connections in the way they needed to be utilized. She saw that everyone's input, no matter how small, was really critical in creating a solution for the problem that was the exclusion of black people from this institutional art world but she
0: also didn't use it as a measurement of how she valued a person. Yeah, you can exist in various spaces and still be grounded in certain values and have a sense of integrity, but I think she knew you couldn't measure people based on their proximity to elitism or whiteness. She just valued people as human beings, as I would like to think.
1: So when did the Ebony Museum of Negro History, AKA the DuSable, actually first open? The current day DuSable opened in
0: 1961 and is located at 740 East 56th place in a beautiful space in the city's Washington Park. But before it found a home there the museum was actually much smaller. How small are we talking? Okay we talking about her house (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Dr. Burroughs used the ground floor of her house at 3806 South Michigan Avenue right across the street from the Southside Community Arts Center To house the first iteration of the museum, Um, it seems to me that
4: you know she really emphasized and you know bringing things home. And when I say
1: home, I'm more specifically referring to the South Side. I love that she was so passionate about the work of the museum and you know closing this gap in the omission of blackness from cultural institutions that she opened up her own home to share what she had.
0: Exactly. Dr. Burroughs was fundraising for their own building at the time but her and her husband Charles Burroughs, they had no problem opening up their home and using the things they already own to educate folks. And
4: you know I I saw a lot of that happening from the perspective of her being an educator and you know providing like this supplementary experience you know for her students and her art classes through her home museum at the Ebony Museum. You know, supporting their um, education with, you know, these objects that she and Charles Burroughs, her husband and friends, you know, um, had began to collect, um, you know, in terms of just providing like these tangible objects, you know, to the youth uh, to support their understanding of who they were
1: as, you know, young black kids, you know, on the south side of Chicago. I can't imagine what students felt at that time. You know, they're walking into a space like that, saying, oh, wow, look at this black woman using what she has, taking time to educate us. Right? I mean, here's a woman in your own community, right,
0: showing you what she knows because she wants to, and that takes a lot of care,
1: and it does take intention. Call it revolutionary. I mean, that's truly the power of Dr. Burroughs. Young Black folks need to know where they come from, and they come from an entire culture that's not talked to us. Even today, right? And she understood there's power in educating young people about where they come from and what that power can grow into. She had a very clear understanding of that. Dr. Burroughs believed so much in the power of
0: mobilizing and the power of having dialogues, And she believed in the ability to open up space for diverse voices. She's been known to host dinner parties at her home featuring artists, poets, even people who were self-proclaimed communists at the time. And she understood that had to happen if people were to move forward. What do you mean when you say moving forward? Well, I think it's important for us to remember Dr. Burroughs was motivated not by theoretical discussions or what ifs, No, she was motivated by finding real answers to life's questions and creating real solutions for the myriad of problems culturally and socially she saw in her community and worldwide. Dr. Burroughs wanted to utilize activism in a more solution-oriented way. But how does one do that? Well, first that meant building community, building institutions, because she was just out here building institutions, building organizations and educating whether it was in Chicago public
1: schools or in prisons to further her cause. It's like, fine, if these museums and programs and opportunities don't exist, we're gonna make them exist. We're gonna find the solutions ourselves instead of waiting for other people to fix it on their own time. And again, that really goes back to what she learned at a young age.
0: Remember what Skyla said? Dr. Burroughs was able to identify the void and because she was so solution-oriented, she was able to identify what needed to be done to fill that void. I mean, we shouldn't romanticize it and say she never struggled or questioned herself, but she definitely didn't let that stop
1: her from doing what she had to do. She was just doing what she felt was right. Exactly. After the break, we'll take you through some of these exhibitions that are currently open across Chicago. Thank you for listening to South Side Stories. This is a part of Art Design Chicago, which is a spirited celebration of the unique and vital role Chicago plays as America's crossroads of creativity and commerce. Led by the Terra Foundation for American Art, this citywide partnership of cultural organizations explores Chicago's art and design legacy with more than 30 exhibitions and hundreds of events throughout 2018. Learn more by visiting artdesignchicago.org.
0: And now, back to the show. Through more than 100 artworks, The Time Is Now offers a nuanced and immersive examination of this place through the eyes of artists living, working, and exhibiting here between 1960 and 1980. The time is indeed now to revisit how these artists navigated and responded to this momentous era of change and conflict. Of course, no single exhibition can adequately survey the entire landscape of art produced on the South Side during this period. This exhibition is an initial foray with the aim that future projects will deepen our understanding of not only the artists represented here, but also the ways that their work and the work of their artistic descendants continues to define the South Side, Chicago, and beyond. Um, as a note of reference, this exhibit was curated by Rebecca Zorak, the Mary Jane Crow Professor in Art and Art History at Northwestern University. The time is now. Art Worlds of Chicago South Side. Between 1960 and 1980, the exhibit is currently up at the Smart Museum of Art, which is part of the University of Chicago, through December 30th. I actually had a chance to go through the exhibit during its opening weekend back in September, and it was stunning. You gotta tell me what you saw. (laughs) Honestly, it was a pretty comprehensive collection and very well curated. I'm very pleased to see that there is a Richard Hunt in this exhibit. Um, Richard Hunt is also a very notable um, Chicago-based sculptor who's worked in Chicago for about over, I wanna say like over 40 years. Um, And his work in the show is titled Wing Hybrid, figure number three. And if you're familiar with his work, a lot of his work um, deals with using welded steel in very abstract forms. So it's a very beautiful piece of work. So overall, this was a very interesting exhibit to view. um, And it was pretty much organized via the Wall of Respect, if you're familiar with that remarkable history of mural-making, the Civil Rights Movement. There's work in there from groups like um, Cobra, Obasi. There's also a little bit of Afrofuturism, you know? Um, the Harry Who, there was outsider art, and also a lot of art that really referenced the jazz movement. So collectively, it was pretty eclectic, right? But really, really rooted in activism and the ways that black artists were working through themes around like race gender um, protest and a sense of belonging
1: how does that make you feel in terms of being an artist in the present sort of looking at that art from the past oh wow that's a really great question (laughs) um
0: not to be corny but it, it also goes back to that legacy right like viewing Artists who are part of such a prolific art movement, right, that was rooted in black determination and 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 black creative agency. I feel like a lot of the art that I'm creating now is really invested in kind of like following that
1: tradition. I love it. So, you know, Dr. Burroughs was working all the way back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And it's, you know, her work is still relevant to you now in 2018, It's also, you know, really interesting to think about um, more of that art that was born and influenced by by Dr. Burroughs' work, like the Black Arts Movement. So what was the Black Arts Movement? So it was prominent in the 1960s and 70s. And the Black Arts Movement, or BAM for short, was the artistic output of the Black Power Movement and Black nationalism.
7: Black cultural nationalism was really important for the Black Arts Movement, and I think that it was a little bit different black cultural nationalism so that's sort of the idea that culture is a key weapon in the struggle for freedom and that um, part of the reason that it's a key weapon is that it has the potential to unite people unite black people across differences so um, one of the things that artists in this period were especially interested in was um, kind of, you know, finding ways for, like, black artists who were, like, you know, university or art school trained to make connections to, like, people on the block who, you know, maybe didn't graduate high school or had a different, um, you know, working class people um, who had their, had, you know, were not, like, without culture, like, had had culture, had their own culture, but, um, but, you um, and actually had culture that maybe those um, college graduate artists needed to learn something from.
0: That's Rebecca Zorak, a curator and art historian at Northwestern. Similar to how Dr. Burrows and her black peers from the School of the Art Institute created the Southside Community Arts Center, the black arts movement inspired black artists and thinkers to find their own creative outlets outside of white owned spaces, white ideas, and established
7: institutions. Um, so we have art that's that's very focused on political um, activism, identity, racial conflict, racial contestation, um, feminist art, or art that engages with issues of gender, um, spaces. So thinking about artists as placemakers, artists as, as creators of um, kind of, multi-purpose arts and culture spaces, which were really, really important on the South Side in this time period. Because um, there weren't a lot of institutional spaces. There weren't a lot of museums showing black art. Um, and there were a few smaller, um, I mean, there was the South Side Community Arts Center, of course, but artists had to make their own spaces. And, and that was true for white artists, too, to some extent, but especially for black
0: artists. A really prominent moment for me in this exhibit was actually seeing the Burroughs printing of faces. Um, And this is a print that she made. Um, I believe this was done in the 1960s, that's what it says here. And this piece really um, focuses on the merging of faces, not only offering an appealing visual pattern here that we have, but also carrying a message about solidarity between individuals. And so, Although Margaret Burroughs was very, very convicted and committed to exalting um, black institutions and building black institutions and supporting black artists and black culture producers, she was also very much a believer of working cross-racially with other groups as well. So a lot of people don't know that in that work, she actually helped found the National Museum of Mexican Art. So this was a huge sort of example of her dedication to working with other people because she really believed in solidarity, right? Like she was a hardcore um, advocate for, you know, black agency, black artistic agency, and black cultural agency. But even among that, she also believed firmly in cross-collaboration and cross-cultural Um, collaboration as well and so this piece is really a visual representation of those beliefs and this is actually from a series of other pieces that she's done sort of around the same motif and the same ideas
1: So what else did you see?
0: Well, one of the most amazing moments for me was meeting a few of the artists that were actually from that period. Like, talk about geeking out. Our producer, Cher Vincent and I, were just walking around appreciating the art when we saw this older couple nearby and the gentleman had on a hat and a salt and pepper beard. The woman had on handmade jewelry. They basically looked like your cool auntie and uncle and we had to find out who they were.
4: Reggie Madison.
0: Yeah. So what is your relationship um, to the show, or do you have a relationship to any of the works in the show?
4: What's my relationship to the show? I lived it, pretty much. I got to work in here. And uh, I knew some of the people, not all. Uh, But it's my period, part of my period, yeah. It's a great show, beautifully put together. It really speaks about a period and uh, I, you know, you sort of take it for granted when you're living it, but to see it now, it's pretty incredible.
5: Yeah, it feels like a family reunion. Yeah. So um, to walk through it and see so many people I knew, to see their work on the wall, to see photographs of them, to see uh, places where you've been. Um, You know, it was just great. It's, yeah, I think it's a really well done show. Um, And I think it's really an important show Mm -hmm. for all of the kind of unsung artists. There was some really significant art going on uh, in this time, in this place that the show proves uh, stands the test of time. It was good work 50 years ago, and it's brilliant work today. So that's also really exciting to see. I love that.
1: It must be incredible to see your work and the work of your friends, your people in that way. Like Reggie said, it's hard to see yourself or your work as part of a moment or a movement until, you know, the moment has already passed. It's seeing your legacy realized. Definitely.
0: And it was also so lovely to meet Reggie and Dawn. But we also got to meet a woman that was actually in the exhibit. Oh, you're in the exhibit. You got to tell me more.
6: Okay, my name is Arlene Turner Crawford, and I have a piece in the exhibit uh, in the other room, a purification mask. Uh, I was uh, a student of Nelson Stevens when I was in college. Uh, He came to teach at Northern Illinois University, where I had started in their art department. And kind of was just very fortunate to have had him to mentor me, and because of... uh, meeting Nelson, I really got to know uh, a lot of the afro artists artists, because they just got off the ground, kind of, when I was in school in the 70s, in the 60s. So, it's just been really exciting to be a part of this show. Um, I'm also the subject of the painting underneath my piece, Yuhuru, uh, because uh, while I was in Northern uh, I, I modeled for the art department, and when Nelson came, I started modeling for his drawing class. And he took a lot of photographs from me, and so he actually photographed a lot of the black students on campus for his subject matter. And uh, I was easy because I was always in the class modeling. And that piece is a, a piece of me, and then the piece that was acquired by the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C by Nelson is of me. So I get to D.C. to see it, because I wanted to be there for the opening when I knew my, the painting would be there. And it was it was incredible. I went to see the exhibit, and uh, I'm taking pictures of it, and then I asked the lady who was taking pictures of it, would you... Uh, could you take me in front of this piece? She said, sure, why not? And she said, well, okay, well, why? I said, well, this is a painting of me. And she just announced it to everybody in the room. This is the model for the piece. And a crowd gathered around and was like, ooh, yes, I do see the results. It was just, it was, I had never been, you know, that kind of attention in my life. So it was was really kind of special for me. That's how I felt, I was like on cloud nine. Yes, I'm, the new, I'm the black Mona Lisa. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The black Mona Lisa, so many goals.
0: We also got a chance to see the Ralph Arnold exhibition, the many hats of Ralph Arnold at the Museum of Contemporary Photography. And it was dope. Here's Rebecca Zurach again, also talking about Ralph Arnold's impact on the Chicago arts community.
7: Ralph Arnold was an artist from the south side of Chicago, or who grew up, I should say, grew up mostly on the south side of Chicago, um, and who uh, is a black, gay artist, uh, painter and collage artist, um, who lived, I'm not sure from when exactly, from adulthood um, on the north side, but retained a really a long, kind of close relationship to the Southside Community Art Center, and had many exhibitions there, and I think was a board member. Um, and also, you know, was an artist-in-residence at Art and & Soul, and worked in various ways in education, um, both formally and informally. He taught, um, well, his, his longest-running academic appointment was at Loyola in Chicago, and he was the chair of the art department there.
1: I loved seeing his work in real life, just stunning. To be honest, like
0: with all of us, like this history is obviously like very familiar to us and we're very familiar with a lot of the concerns in the ways that Arnold is working around race, gender, politics and sexuality. Um, so for me, a lot of the, the sort of areas of learning were really just like in his practice. Um, I didn't realize how extensive his collage work was. Fascinating.
1: Even though a lot of the subject matter of his work is very heavy, (laughs) for lack of a better word, it is still, um, there's there's a level of relatability um, to it that I find kind of um, enjoyable, knowing life in the present in 2018 I just uh, how can one woman do so much I I just feel like I need to step up my game like for real (laughs) oh my god same girl Dr. Burroughs was out here you know although she is best known for founding the DuSable Dr. Burroughs created a number of different initiatives outside of the traditional art world During this time of institution building, Dr. Burroughs was still a regular degular schmegular Chicago Public Schools teacher.
0: That's commitment. And it was through her years of teaching that Dr. Burroughs was inspired to take what she learned working in a traditional classroom
1: and moved it to Statesville Prison. So why do you think Dr. Burroughs' work in Statesville is so important to her overall story? It goes back to the idea of the void.
0: Because Dr. Burroughs was so skilled at seeing it, she was able to recognize other folks, not just black artists or public school students, experiencing marginalization. Dr. Burroughs felt like education was just as important in spaces like a prison as it is outside of a prison. For her, working with incarcerated folks was just another way to extend her relationship building. Here's Skyla again on Dr. Burroughs' impact in the prisons. So, you know, to contextualize it a
4: little bit, um, PNAP, the Prisoner and Neighborhood Art Project, you know, if it weren't for Dr. Burroughs, I'm not going to say that, you know, those folks wouldn't be able to do the work now, but I definitely know that, you know, because of her, they had a model to go from. And they give her credit as well, you know, because she started these um, educational programs uh, in the prison system uh, with Statesville Prison, for example.
0: Like many things she created, even Dr. Burroughs' prison programs became the gold standard. Meaning what she did then can be seen, felt, and heard now. Again, here's Tempest Hazel.
3: Um, But she was an important catalyst for a lot of the things and the things that she did in her quiet moments were just as significant and impactful as the things that she did as like collective building throughout the city. I think that the South Side at the time, and I'm, I'm sure folks who, li- who actually like, lived here and experienced it could speak to this more than I, I could, but you know, that time for black folks across the country, across the world, was, it was just really kind of like a time of ideas flowing, things happening um, in all realms and all levels, from the street to academia and the ivory towers, like everywhere things were happening and people were building, so it just makes sense that you would look around and be part of that. Um, and Chicago being such a huge, playing such an important role in, in all of that.
5: What will your legacy be? What will your legacy be when you have finally cast off these moral cords? When you've crossed the great divide When you can no longer run life's race, when you no longer have a place, when you have at last completed the circle round and when an escape is no longer to be found. What will your legacy be? When you walk into the unknown all by yourself and alone with no friend to lead you or to hold your hand, what will your legacy be?
0: That was Dr. Burroughs herself reciting her poem, What Will Your Legacy Be?
1: I love that poem. Me too. You know, I think it really exemplifies everything we've been talking about so far. I mean, giving that poem's intention, do you think Dr. Burroughs operated under a model of legacy building? Model of legacy building? Yeah. So to me, a legacy does not just have to be what other people see and what you do. There can and should be some agency there, right? You know, one has to think, what kind of legacy am I trying to leave behind? What can I do to make my legacy more impactful? And it just seems like Dr. Burroughs was at least somewhat aware of this. Of course she was. You only
0: have a certain amount of time on this earth, and what you leave behind is what you leave behind. That's your legacy. I think her wanting to find a solution is about her interest and in legacy building. It's not just living life and recognizing issues in the world. That's great and all, but what is it that you want to leave behind? And for Dr. Burroughs, she was very focused on leaving something behind that was tangible for people in the
1: present, but could also benefit people far into the future. Legacy building is not just talking about it and waiting for someone else to solve the problem that's never gonna work, right? Legacy building is doing it yourself. Once again, here's Skylar Hearn. What will your legacy be? And I think
4: that in part, her legacy is someone who was able to show unadulterated love, concern, um, and care for black culture, This wide you know array of what black culture is what it means you know um and for black people and i like to think again this may be a romanticized view but i like to think that she didn't make much difference between like her richest friends and her poorest friends you know her friends who were always able to exercise freedom outside of the prison industrial complex to her friends who were imprisoned who probably still are imprisoned you know who she met um I like to think that, you know, she saw it fit that everyone had access to,
1: you know, the access to um, the same information. And so what are some other parts of Margaret's legacy that we should be aware of? Well, for one, the Southside Community Arts Center is still here.
0: Not that it has always been a cakewalk. But if you recall earlier, we mentioned the center was one of the 100 community art centers created through the WPA.
1: But in 2018, the Southside Community Arts Center is the only one left standing. Now that is legacy building. That shows establishing an institution, not just for the people of back then, but for the people of today and even for the people in the future. You know, it's really interesting that
0: the center still does educational work within that community. They still offer art classes. They still have residence programs where they have different artists come in and they create work. That foundational work was first created in the 1940s and still exists
1: in 2018. See, I find that to be very unique because it's still in that same Southside community. It's been in the community for 60 years too. Many institutions have to change locations or switch up their mission to survive for that long. But the Southside Community Arts Center has stayed true to its roots. They're still doing what they say that they wanted to do. It's that idea we talked about before of looking for inclusion in exclusionary places versus creating spaces outside of that desire for inclusion. And you don't have to resound yourself to a reality of a situation, right? You can decide there should and is another reality. And it may take a little time to come to life, but it can be beneficial to all of us in the end. Margaret Burroughs and people like her, people who work in that vein, I feel very much have made me possible. That's Camila Rashid, community programmer, curator, and artist. She said figures like Dr. Burroughs created a template for how to be a black creator and leader and that without her work, she would not be able to do the work that she does now. I wish I had known about her in my teens or even my adolescence, you know? I
0: wish I had known about her at the same time that I was learning about um, Ida B. Wells or Sojourner Truth, you know, like I wish or um, Shirley Chisholm, you know, like I wish around the same time that like people in my life were giving me those kind of women to be aware of.
1: And Dr. Burroughs' work in prisons is still mimicked and utilized today, said Rebecca Zorak.
7: I mean, I'm, you know, thinking about, um, uh, Sarah Ross and um, the Prison Neighborhood Arts Project, I've had you know some conversations with her too and, and you know various other people involved in that project. Um, and, I mean Sarah along with Erica Miners wrote an essay in a volume that I edited um, that was about Margaret Burroughs and her work teaching in prisons um, that really was you know I mean they were really looking to to her and to that history and to the history of other, especially black artists teaching in prisons in Illinois, um, as a way of kind of contextualizing the work that they're doing, teaching in prisons. But maybe most
1: critical to the story of Dr. Burroughs is that she stayed. She may have been born in the South, but Chicago was her home. Right, and most artists and creators have used
0: Chicago as kind of like a springboard or an incubator space for their projects. It's where they acquire an education, it's where they make those initial connections,
1: and it's where they establish roots. But it's not always the place you stay. There's less money here, fewer outlets and opportunities. To really make something of worth and be recognized for that worth, you have to shoot for the stars. Meaning what you do has to be bigger than Chicago and
0: bigger than Los Angeles and bigger than New York. But it really has to be radical and revolutionary. Um, And I think that's what really defines like something of worth, right? It has to be new, it has to be the best.
1: And it just so happens that the best was born here. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Burroughs, she loved the South Side. She loved what she was able to become and what she was able to accomplish by way of her relationship to the South Side and the city for a whole. It also goes back to her
0: belief and her dedication to staying rooted in the community. Dr. Barrows felt that if she was going to dedicate her life to the cultural contributions of black artists, and if she was going to be passionate and serious about rooting herself in Chicago, that she had to
1: stay on the South Side. That's how things are able to sustain, through relationships. And you know those relationships are built through time and energy. They don't just spring up overnight. That's why the South Side Community Arts Center is still here. That's why the DuSable Museum, still here. She understood that if she
0: was going to do this work, like do this work for real, that she would have to stay here, which is almost sacrificial in a way. But I think she knew that. And she accepted that. And that's why we celebrate Dr. Burroughs today. Stories is a production of Post Loudness and 60 Inches from Center. This piece was also produced by the amazing Cher Vincent, editorial oversight by James T.
1: Green, and music by Aminata Burton. We want to give a special thanks to the Terra Foundation in partnership with Art Design Chicago, the Smart Museum of Art, the DuSable Museum, the Southside Community Arts Center, the Stony Island Arts Bank, the Hyde Park Arts Center, the Washington Park Refectory, and the Museum of Contemporary Photography. And last but certainly not least, we want to give a huge
0: thank you to everyone we interviewed for this project, including Fahim Majid, Camila Rashid, Masekwa Myers, Patrick McCoy, Rebecca Zorak, Reggie Madison, Arlene Turner Crawford, Skyla Hearn, and Tempest
1: Hazel. I'm Britt Julius, and I'm Zakia Najiba. Thanks for listening.